Hey, I'm Natasha Crane. And I'm Elisa Childers. Welcome to Unshaken Faith, where we equip you to live your Christian faith boldly in a chaotic culture. What is up with the exvangelical hashtag? If you're on social media, you've probably seen this hashtag used alongside the deconstruction hashtag, and in many cases, it's followed by a deconversion story. So we gathered up some examples from the internet of statements that are accompanied by the exvangelical hashtag for your enjoyment today. So here are some of them. The first one says this, a God that requires belief in it in order to avoid eternal punishment while also not providing evidence of its existence is not a loving God. Hashtag exvangelical. Quote, I'm not going to derive my cosmology from 4,000-year-old legends of a jealous, bloodthirsty demigod. End quote. Hashtag exvangelical. Quote, if abortion is terminating a living thing you created that's still in formation stages, doesn't that mean God aborted an entire planet with the great flood? Great flood? End quote. Hashtag ex-Christian, hashtag exvangelical. And the final one is this, quote, in abusive relationships, one person convinces another person that they are worthless and no one else could ever love them. That's why people stay. This is also how the church operates, end quote, hashtag exvangelical. Well, that's a lot. And today we're going to talk through the history and the meaning of the exvangelical hashtag and discuss what it's really about and how it leads to quotes like these. But first, we have some really exciting announcements. Natasha, we're back. Yes, we are back. Hooray. We need some applause or something. So that's the first big announcement. Oh, there we go. You're on it. <laughs> I love it. I actually have an applause button that I love to use. So there we go. That is lovely. We need that more on this podcast. So that is the first <laughs> big announcement is that we are back with new episodes of this podcast. If you missed our Christmas live stream in December, we had explained that we had to come to kind of a sudden halt with episodes in November because both of us just honestly had our hands full with book projects and some other things that were going on. But we want to assure you that was just a break. We were so excited today to be back with a whole new season of shows. So we are here and we are excited. Now, if you missed that live stream, you may also have missed the big news about our next Unshaken conferences, which Elisa and I do with Frank Turek to equip and encourage Christians to stand firm in today's culture. So we did four dates in 2023, and we're doing four more this year, and we just announced the first two of those four dates. As of this week, the tickets are now on sale, so that's another big announcement today. So here are the dates if you've missed them. On March 9th, we'll be at Metro City Church in Taylor, Michigan. That's in the Detroit area. And on May 18th, we'll be at Christ Church at Grove Farm, which is in the Pittsburgh area. So we are thrilled about both of these locations. Go to unshakenconference.com for all the information you need and to get your tickets now. And if you can, please help us spread the word if you know people in those areas. Well, as usual, we have some tips of the week for you guys. My tip of the week is to use the language the Bible teaches when you're sharing truth with people rather than Christians believe or I believe. And I, I started thinking about this this week when I was volunteering in Sunday school with some fourth and fifth graders because I realized how often we just kind of colloquially say, oh, well, Christians believe when we're answering questions. But when we use that kind of language, we're kind of inadvertently putting what we're saying in the same category of people saying Mormons believe or Muslims believe. 
it sounds like we're just sharing opinions. But when we say the Bible teaches, we're making it clear where the Christian goes for answers about what is true. And of course, we then have to be prepared to explain why there's good reason to believe the Bible is God's word. But pointing people away from our belief to what the Bible says just in our language is a subtle first step to getting people to think about where their beliefs come from. Elisa, what do you have? That's really good. I like that one, Natasha, because it trains our kids to think of truth in terms of being objective. Like we're going to an objective standard outside of right. ourselves to derive our beliefs from. That's really good. My tip of the week is when you go on social media and you make a statement and then somebody comes into your comments with pushback, don't let them swing you off topic. I saw this happen so many times just this week while I was looking at social media. I'm going to give you a specific example. So on my Instagram page, we posted my and my co-author Tim Barnett's definition of deconstruction in our upcoming book, The Deconstruction of Christianity. Now, the definition we give is that deconstruction is a postmodern process of rethinking your faith, but not requiring scripture as a standard. Now, interestingly, we had pushback from a lot of different people. Some Christians thought we were advocating for deconstruction, which of course we weren't. We were saying don't deconstruct because of this definition. But some of the deconstructionists came on and started pushing back. But what I noticed is that nobody actually interacted with our actual definition. Most of the comments that were coming from deconstructionists said things like, well, which scripture, which interpretation? And they were getting it off topic. And the tendency can be to start going down that path. But in reality, to claim, oh, well, which interpretation? We're not talking about interpretation. So what is a good way to kind of get it back on track is to ask a question that will get them back to what you've originally posted. So what I might, if I was going to interact with it, I might say, if we could agree that there is one objectively true interpretation of scripture, now how would you respond to my definition? Or, or something along those lines, just to get them off of the secondary topic, which is, well, maybe we have different interpretations interpretations and back to what the original post was actually about. I see this all the time and it's hard because it's so easy to get sucked into those rabbit trails. But if you've made a claim, we've talked about this before, the burden of proof is on you to make the case for the claim you've made, but don't let people get you to start making other claims and get into other areas of discussion. That's so good. And it's so funny that you bring that up because when I, so the tip that I just gave about using the language of the Bible teaches, I had posted that on Facebook this week. And there were a couple of people who came back with exactly that same response mm. about, well, you know, but it it depends on who's saying that the Bible teaches this or that. It depends on the interpretation. And you're right. That's a completely different issue. In fact, I was thinking um, that we need to do this as a whole other episode. So maybe we can handle that in a couple of shows from now. Talk more sure. about that because it is so common. You're right. I hear it all the time. Well, the Exvangelical hashtag was started by a guy named Blake Chastain in 2016, and it has since been used on TikTok multiple millions of times. In fact, it receives over 100,000 impressions on Twitter, or I guess we call it X now, every day. So it's no exaggeration to say that this hashtag has turned into a movement. But a lot of people are confused about what the exvangelical hashtag is all about. So we're hoping to shed some light on that today. In order to understand what exvangelical means, we have to first understand what evangelical means. But it's actually harder to define that than you might think because people have all kinds of different definitions. In fact, Dr. Carl Truman wrote a book called The Real Scandal of the Evangelical Mind. And that was in response to a book by Mark Knoll called The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind. In that, Truman wrote this, quote, For there to be a scandal of the evangelical mind, 
there must be not just a mind, but also a readily identifiable thing called an evangelical and a movement called evangelicalism. And the existence of such is increasingly in doubt, end quote. So Truman's point was that the word evangelical is very fluid with different people defining it in different ways. And one way that a lot of people, just for an example, have defined it is along the lines of what's referred to as the Bebbington quadrilateral. So that sounds really fancy, but according to Bebbington, evangelicals were historically focused on the Bible as a source for essential truth, the cross as the atoning sacrifice of Christ, personal conversion as necessary for salvation, and activism primarily expressed as preaching the gospel. Okay, so there's one kind of set of criteria that people have used for defining evangelical. But that description is really broad, actually, and it doesn't provide specific doctrinal criteria like a statement of faith to determine its boundaries. All of that said, that's just a little historical context to get us thinking about what this word means that we often use. But all that said, for those in the ex-evangelical online space, evangelical has its own very specific meaning. And so that's what we need to talk about today. It is most associated with misogyny, racism, homophobia, and the political support of Donald Trump. So these are some very different things than historically when we've been looking at, you know, what do people who identify as an evangelical actually believe doctrinally? Now it's associated with these really repugnant uh, things in today's society. So ex-evangelicals are speaking out because they find Christians and biblical morality repulsive. They are part of a movement not because they just think the truth claims of Christianity are wrong, but because they think Christianity is explicitly harmful. So, Lisa, I think that most people would assume that ex-evangelical simply means not evangelical. But is that really the case? Right. No, there's much more going on than just simply I was evangelical and now I'm not. You don't tend to see the ex-evangelical hashtag uh, used in line with somebody who might have maybe grown up Southern Baptist, and then they do a bunch of study and they convert to Roman Catholicism. You're not going to see the hashtag exvangelical on that, or maybe somebody who converts to Eastern Orthodoxy from Protestantism. You don't tend to see that hashtag there. It tends to be people who believe that historical Christian beliefs are toxic or harmful. Uh, But we can actually go to Blake Chastain, who you mentioned in the opening, Natasha, to find out what specifically they mean about it. So Blake uh, Chastain penned a blog post and he fleshed out what it means to use the exvangelical hashtag. And he referred to this as a working definition. He acknowledged that it's a bit fluid and uh, it's not really concretized in its usage yet, so it might change a little bit. But he went ahead and characterized what exvangelicals are leaving behind. So this would be his definition of evangelicalism. And he did that under five basic points. We're going to try to talk through those in the rest of the uh, episode today. But here are the five points. So the first one, and this is what evangelicals are leaving behind is a literal reading of the Bible. The second one is a belief that women are to be submissive to men. The third one is a belief in the sanctity of heterosexuality, heteronormativity, and a rejection of homosexuality as sinful. The fourth one is the assumption that the American way of life is the best way of life on earth. And the fifth one is identification and partnership with political and social conservatism. So I'll just hit number one here really quick, a literal reading of the Bible. Many people say, I'm I'm leaving this literal reading of the Bible. Now, there's a sense 
moments in which I think this is a little bit of a straw man. And interestingly, in a twist of irony here, some deconstructionists are the most wooden literalists when they're trying to prove the Bible wrong. They'll take it very literally to try to say the Bible is evil or it's this or it's that. Uh, But you can go to any conservative seminary and take a hermeneutics class, and they will teach you that the Bible has figures of speech. There's poetry. There's a there's some allegory. There are things we literary devices that we need to recognize. For example, Jesus said he is a door. Of course, that doesn't mean he's made of wood and has hinges. It calls his followers sheep, but that doesn't mean that we have woolly coats and say bah, right? So that these are the easy ones. Some of them are a little bit more difficult, but just like any type of literature that you would you would consider the genre. Am I reading a book of poetry? If you're reading a book of poetry, you would not assume to take what's written in that book as literal truth about the world. Now, if you're reading a history book, you're, you pretty much know you're not reading a poem. You're not reading an allegory. You're reading about what happened in the past. And so the Bible is a collection of books that all have different genres, and you have to take those into consideration along with some other tools to figure out where the figures of speech are. And that's really what the art and science of Herman is all about. And so that kind of nuance seems to be missing from the conversation when we're charged with just being literalists. Yeah, I agree. It seems like it's really a straw man because at the end of the day, they're not looking to get into a conversation really about the interpretation of the Bible. It seems like what they're really walking away from is not a literal interpretation or any other interpretation, but really an authoritative reading of the Bible. So Mm. if I were going to correct his point for him, I would say that what they're walking away from is the idea that the Bible is authoritative, regardless of what interpretive sense you use. Well, the second point that he made was that ex-evangelicals are leaving behind the belief that women are submissive to men. So this one is interesting because sometimes in talking about it, ex-evangelicals will totally mischaracterize what Christians believe about gender relationships, and then they'll reject that mischaracterization, which anyone would reject because they're so extreme. And then other times they characterize it fairly, but they just refuse to accept that it could possibly be the design of the creator that men and women have different roles for the family and church. So the most common mischaracterization is some version of men are worth more than women. I see this a lot that, Mm -hmm. you know, people say that somehow the Bible is teaching that men are more valued, that men should hold all of the power that, you know, that, that somehow women are less than in the sense of value. But of course, that is not what Christians believe. That is a straw man. That's a mischaracterization. The Bible says everyone is made in the image of God. So we are all of the same value. We have to make that clarification. Now, Christians have disagreements. On on the roles, you know, be complementarian versus egalitarian, but that's a different issue. The bottom line is that we are all the same value. Another one is that women are expected to just silently submit to their husband, even in abusive relationships. I see that mm-hmm. all the time. Uh, a lot of times, people are just claiming that Christians expect women to stay in abusive situations because you're quote unquote being submissive, and, and that's not correct either. Husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. So a lot of straw mans out there about what Christians believe, but at the end of the day, when they are fairly characterizing it and they just don't like what the Bible teaches according to a complementarian view, well, that's taking issue with God's word and that's taking an issue with what the Bible claims is true, not taking an issue with the authority of the Bible in terms of actually looking at evidence and those kinds of things. So sometimes it's a mischaracterization, other times it's actually taking issue with what the Bible teaches. 
Yeah, that's a good distinction. And also there are certainly environments, spiritual environments and streams of Christianity that have abused this doctrine, but you can't take an abuse of a doctrine to get rid of the whole doctrine because you just have to, you have to untie the knots there and say, look, this is actually an abuse of a good teaching and here is the right teaching. Um, Okay, so the third one is a belief in the sanctity of heterosexuality, heteronormativity, and a rejection of homosexuality as sinful. Well, I mean, I I appreciate that he's forthright about this. I think that we do see this in the deconstruction hashtag all the time is that somebody begins to have a moral problem with biblical sexual ethics, which uh, does teach the sanctity of heterosexuality as far as marriage being between one man and one woman. Our bodies are literally designed to work together uh, as two halves of a reproductive system, a man and a woman. So that, that is, there is sanctity around that. And, uh, and, historic Christian teaching does teach that homosexuality is desires and behavior is sinful, just like any, uh, errant desire and behavior that we might have. And so, uh, yeah, I don't have much to say about that other than I appreciate that he's just kind of directly saying, yeah, we don't like this about historic Christianity. And I think that the mischaracterization there sometimes does come in the form of then saying it's homophobic, like you're somehow right. scared of, uh, of right. you know, gay people because of what the Bible teaches, which of course is completely wrong right. if you understand. Or that, or that we would say that because somebody might struggle in that area or have certain feelings and temptations in that area that they are disqualified and that they are not welcome right. to join our churches and, and you know— our message for everyone is the same. Repent and believe the gospel. Everybody, no matter what your struggle is, has the opportunity to repent and trust in Christ. Yeah, absolutely. And that comes back to every meme that's out there, basically, which is, you know, somehow suggesting that Christians and the church don't want gay people to come in. If you have same-sex attraction, then you are not welcome here. And that is, I mean, unless a church is doing something that is unbiblical, that is not the case. It's, yeah. it, you said exactly, repent and, and come to know the Lord. Chastain's fourth point was that the American way of life is the best way of life on earth. So while it can sound like he's just splitting hairs over whether America is the best or merely just one of a number of good countries, what evangelicals really take issue with is thinking America is good at all. And mm-hmm. that really stems from the progressive view that looks at everything through this lens of critical theories that we always talk about, because that puts everyone and everything into these oppressor and oppressed groups. So America as a country is seen as an oppressor because of its history with slavery, its alleged modern day white supremacy, its support for Israel. Israel's already considered to be an oppressor, so that kind of union is just looked down upon even more so, and so on. So anyone who would think that the founding principles of our country that were rooted in a Judeo-Christian worldview are good is considered to be part of the problem. You're like blind to the oppression at best or you're complicit at worst. So ex-evangelicals and really progressives in general are repulsed by anyone who thinks America is good in any sense. And I think most Christians would look back, and not only Christians, a lot of others as well, but most Christians, especially would look back at those founding principles and they would say these were good. They weren't always executed correctly, which is why we still had slavery for many years. But the principles themselves that are embedded in the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, those are good. So we can separate out some of the the sins of the country from the principles on which the country was founded. But that nuance often doesn't take place in these conversations mm-hmm. with evangelicals because it's just America is bad. And That's if right. you yeah. are a Christian and you like America and you are part of the problem because Christianity has been part of the norms in our country for the last 400 years. So it's all kind of lumped together. 
Yeah. And I think four and five go together hand in hand when number five is identification and partnership with political and social conservatism. This is just seen as anathema. This is like you cannot be politically conservative in their view and be a good Christian or be somebody that is morally good. When in reality, if you just look at kind of the principles of of conservatism, I mean, more Christians are going to lean that way. Uh, conservatism tends to defend the sanctity of life uh, and and approach things from a, uh, a position where if you look at the other side, it's, it's very pro-death in a lot of ways. But it's interesting how much politics plays a role into these kinds of things. And I don't know if we've talked about this on the podcast before, but there was some sociological research that was released a couple years ago about the difference politically between conservative and progressive Christians. And it actually discovered that I think you could make the case that progressive Christians are actually more politically motivated than conservative Christians because the study founded that progressive Christians tend to start with their politics, their political views, and then their theology flows out of that. Whereas for conservative Christians, it starts with theology and then they're going to vote and they're, and they're going to form their political beliefs based on their uh, the, theology and their beliefs about God. So that's just an interesting kind of irony there with that statement. Yeah, it's always interesting to me too that, you know, I don't think the evangelicals would have any problem with someone of faith saying, oh, I'm going to vote uh, in a more liberal way because of my faith. In fact, they talk right. all the time about it. it's their faith that informs that they're, uh, you know, voting because they think that the left has the, the right position on immigration, for example, yeah. or on health care or of ta- bigger government to take care of people. And so the evangelical would have no problem with say- saying my faith informs my vote if it's going in a liberal direction. But if your faith informs your vote and you think that that pushes you in a conservative direction, now you've got a problem with them. Mm. Um, so I, I think that's something like it, it's an important point to understand because especially when things like Christian nationalism as a term gets thrown mm-hmm. around, Christian nationalism usually in the way that it's used is often somebody just saying, well, if you're using your faith to determine your vote and that pushes you rightward, then you want a Christian nation. But if you use it to determine going leftward, then that's okay. So mm-hmm. there is a bit of a um, a, a false dichotomy. I don't know if that's the right word for it. Um, yeah. But a bottom line takeaway really today is that evangelicals are in some ways genuinely opposed to what the Bible teaches, and in other ways, they're opposed to mischaracterizations of it. So if you're ever in a conversation with someone who is attracted to this movement, be careful to ask good questions to see if they're reacting to actual biblical teachings before you offer answers. It might be that you first have to have a conversation about whether what they think the Bible teaches is actually what the Bible teaches. Yeah. And if you want more on this topic, we go deep into it in my upcoming book, The Deconstruction of Christianity, What It Is, Why It's Destructive, destructive, and How to Respond. That's coming out in just a couple of weeks on January 30th. So you still have time to get some pre-order bonuses. You can order the book wherever books are sold. You can go to Amazon or christianbook.com, or you can go to Barnes & Noble. Get your receipt number and head on over to the deconstructionofchristianity.com. Fill out the form, put in your receipt number, and you will get an email back with a free chapter. And that's our advice chapter. And you're also going to get 60 days of free access to the audiobook. So again, wherever books are sold, it's called The Deconstruction of Christianity. Head over to the deconstructionofchristianity.com, get your pre-order bonuses. Well, thanks so much for listening today. And don't forget to subscribe to the Natasha Crane podcast and the Elisa Childers podcast for long form episodes where we go deeper into topics like these. But for now, let's remember that as Christians, we have a firm foundation to stand on, as Psalm 62 puts it, is our rock and salvation, our fortress where we will never be shaken. Thank you.